every time I look at this desk, this holy desk, that Roger comes to mind. Y'all know he built this out of scrap? That boy is something else. And it's your fault, Tom. <laughs> now, good morning. Y'all sound like you're awake. That's good. Now, I'm sorry that our pastor has got the COVID stuff and uh, he called and asked what I fill in and I'm going to, by the grace of God, do just that. Now, I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. That's in the New Testament. And I want you to turn over and we're going to be reading chapter 3 verses 1 through 11. I want you to be very careful to pay attention to what you read. This is not one of those passages that's easy to preach. But it is powerful because it it addresses all the things we struggle with as saved sinners. Now, listen carefully to God's Word. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Now that word right there is really, really serious. In 1992, Table Talk published a little magazine that they publish every month. If you all don't read it, you need to get it and read it. It's out there in the hallway. This one had to do with the ravaged bride of Christ. What happens when men who are lost come into a church, now listen to this carefully. They wear sheep's clothing, but underneath their ravenous dogs or wolves. And a Jew didn't think highly of dogs. You call somebody a dog, that was about the nastiest thing you could say to them. Now I want you to listen to this very carefully. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now he's talking about Jews that think because they're circumcised according to the Old Testament that they're special. That's not what this is referring to in the sense of saved people. We're not looking at what we've done to earn us salvation. But a lot of the Jews were. And so they came at Paul who wrote this letter while he was in jail, chained to Roman guards seven days a week, living on bread and water, and he was very careful to say to this church, you're going to have some folks come in, and they're not of God. They're ravenous wolves. Now watch this. For we are the real circumcision meaning God circumcised our heart. By grace, He gave us a new heart and He removed the death that's in us. For we are the real circumcision, one who worship by the Holy Spirit of God and the glory in Jesus Christ. And we put no confidence in our flesh. The word flesh there is sarks. It has to do with what is lost. We bring to God what is lost. 
And He gives us life. And that life replaces what is lost. Now watch this, verse 4. Though I myself have reasons for confidence in the flesh. Now He's saying, and He wants us to be careful. It's easy to stand up and say, look at all the things I am and I've done in the name of God. And guess what? There's not one of them worth a nickel. I don't even know what a worth of the nickel is worth anymore. Now, if anyone else thinks he has any reason for confidence or pride in the flesh, I have more. Now, he's saying, I'm looking at myself before I got saved, and then in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus when Christ confronted him and, and uh, the light knocked Paul, Saul, off the horse. By the way, you know that Saul means big. Paul means little. Do you all know that? You do now. I have, I love this, confidence in the flesh. I have more circumcised on the eighth day. You know why they did it on the eighth day? It's a medical thing. You have less infection. You have less blood flow. The baby healed quicker. Then he goes on to say, the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. You know that most of the Benjaminites, Saul, King Saul, they were left-handed. Now that's not bad. Just saying they're left-handed. I think Betty's left-handed and she's smart as whip. All right. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, as for the law, a Pharisee. You know what the word Pharisee means? Seeker of righteousness. They came into existence in the middle between the last book of the Old Testament and the book of Matthew. And they're supposed to be seekers of righteousness. And a lot of the Pharisees thought that they were holy because they were law keepers. They were really law breakers. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Boy, that's quite a thing to say. I'm gooder than the rest of you. That's what he's talking about. But whatever can gain I had, now this gets down to humility. I count it loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count, now look at this, everything as loss because of the surpassing worth first of the knowledge, just knowing, not knowing about, but actually knowing personally the Son of God. My Lord, for His sake I have suffered, there's number two, the loss of all things. Number three, I count as them as rubbish. The Greek word there means trash or dung. So He does not look at His many accomplishments, His academia, all of that, as anything important. Because why? It won't save you. Christ is the answer. He goes on to say, that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. The law cannot save you. The law is good. The law is there to teach us what is right and wrong from God's point of view. He goes on to say, but that which comes through faith, that's the word pistuo, 
You know, Paul talks in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 about faith. And then he talks in Romans about faith. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. So the Holy Spirit who gave us the Bible speaks to our heart and regenerates us. He gives us the faith of Christ. Galatians 2. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Not I, but I live by, listen to this, by the faith of the Son of God who loves me and gave Himself for me. It goes on to say this, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him. That's number one. Here are the things that we want to be real in our lives. To know Him, not just know about Him. Listen, there's a lot of people. Two boys came to our house yesterday wanting to sell AT&T. Now, I'm not promoting any of that. I'm just telling you they came. And right away, I got to talk to them about Jesus. And I found out that they both had Bible names. One was Silas. The other was Matthew. At least they knew their names were in the Bible. And I got to talking to them about Jesus. They didn't know Jesus. They knew about Him. They were nice boys, but they were lost as a goose. And when I got through talking with them, I had the privilege to share Jesus Christ. And I look at this, and Paul is saying, I know Him. And where did Paul learn that? On the road to Damascus, when Christ knocked him off his horse and converted him by blinding him to his great pride and his sinfulness and his arrogance. And he wanted to know the power, not only know Christ, but know His power in resurrection and His share in His suffering and like be like Him in His death. Now, how many of us want those three things to be true of our testimony? Repeating His resurrection, that's power beyond our knowing. Suffering, suffering for what is right, I think much about Ephesians and much about Matthew 5. And Jesus talks about being thankful for being persecuted for righteousness' sake. And we go to the cross. There He hangs, beaten up, bloody, crown of thorns, nails through His body, naked in front of all those people. And He doesn't cuss anybody. He doesn't fuss at God the Father. He even turns to a sorry broken old sinner thief hanging on a cross near him. That boy is crying out, Save me! Save me! I need help! The other one is mocking Jesus. And Jesus turned and what did He say to that boy? Today you'll what? Be with me where? That's right. Paradiso. Parad. Heaven. Jesus saved that man who didn't have time to be a Sunday school teacher a deacon, an elder, a preacher, or even go to church probably. And then he closes with this, that by many, by many, any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now I'm going to put my Bible right there and I'm going to follow some notes I've worked up and I want you all to be real patient because it's going to go fast. you got to have ears to hear. This is not to entertain you, but it's to tell you the truth. The first thing that I began to understand 
as I read this passage, is the condition of the church in Philippi. You can go and there's no church in Philippi today. But there's an area that the, what are those Arab boys? Turkish. The Turks. They own all that now. And they don't give a ripping flip for Jesus Christ. And I look at this and I see to myself, the Jews came in following Paul and began to make his life humanly miserable until we read this, we understand that he, like our Lord Jesus, could thank the Father for the suffering and the pain he had been through. Why? Because James chapter 1 says, all that God sends to us is whether it's God's justice or whether it's God's judgment. It's to make us turn to God, to depend on Him, not on ourselves. And a lot of us come in church frustrated with our government and our churches and people around us because we've got our eyes off the Bible, off of Jesus Christ, and on the things that can't control. God's in control. Not the world, not the devil, and you and I know. And I looked at this, and he says, but you'll be able to recognize the ravenous wolves when they come into the church. Now, do y'all know what a wolf is? He looks like a big dog, doesn't he? they got a mouthful of bad teeth, and they love fresh meat. Now, the people out in the Colorados, they have a problem with them. The state of Colorado allows wolves to run in packs. But they also have men out there that will shoot them if they have to. Why? Because a wolf, when he gets hungry, comes down out of the mountains in the snow, will go straight to a cattle farm and pick him out a young calf or a young sow uh, cow. Y'all grow up raising cattle, I did. I'm just used to all this. And I looked at this and I said, ravenous wolf. No wonder they've got guys with 30-30s and heavy rifles that chase the wolves back up in the mountains or they shoot them because you don't want to come down and see your congregation chewed all the pieces. Now what would happen if in our day there was justice for the criminals that walk our streets and sit in our churches? That's something to think about, isn't it? I looked at this and Paul is saying their motivation, the worldly, is Satan. you got to get it straight. Satan, the destroyer, tries to get a hold of people's hearts and he loves to get a hold of people's minds who are not believers but who are baby Christians and twist what is true and make them believe untruth. Paul goes on to tell us, one of the places that Satan loves to attack the most, and some of y'all will resonate with this, he goes after the leaders. You know who I fear for more? Leaders. I fear for Mr. Biden because he is a foolish man. He needs Christ, and you need to pray for him to get saved. And that goes along with that Nancy Pelosi one and Chuck Schumer, and I'm being political. And I'm going to do it because Dan, 
Mr. Davies in the 1700s raised the Hanover County Militia, and it's, that was in Virginia, Don. And that's what we've got to do in our day is stand and be counted for the gospel. And when the wolves come into the church, point them out. Call their hand. I'll never forget a lady in the church came to me one day and she said, y'all know what a Jehovah's Witness is? That's the devil's witness. She came to me and she said, I've got a Jehovah's Witness coming to my house to really put it on you. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, she, she wants to meet you. And I said, well, I'm just a, an old country boy that, that doesn't really know much about her, but I know a little about the Bible. And she came in there and she began to tell us what she believed. And I said, lady, I want to stop you right now. What you're telling me is that men save themselves by their works, and that's a lie. And you're trying to tell me that the gospel is a lie. That's a lie. And I said, your boss is named Satan. And I'll never forget, she threw her hands up, screamed, and ran out the back door. The lady came over and she said, what would you do? I told her the truth. And she couldn't handle it because her boss man is not Jesus Christ. And I looked at this and it said, Paul carefully guarded his own soul and he came looking at the church to guard it, to love people where they were and to not beat them up and not destroy their lives. He came to build unity and he did it by truth. Our offensive spiritual weapon is God's Word. Now there are two things here that I want you to take hold of. And the first is this. Our confidence is not in the flesh. There's not a thing in us. Daniel, I love you, but I can't trust you. I can't trust me. You know why? I'm a sinner. But I can trust Christ in you. And I want you all to think about that because elders and deacons and church members all have the same responsibility to have no confidence in self. Self will let you down. And I looked at this, and the false teachers that came in teaching false doctrine were building their teaching on pride. Trust in self. You're good people. I'll never forget getting a book given to me. I'm okay, you're okay. That was a long time ago. That is the biggest bunch of canal water I'd ever fooled with. I want you all to think about something. When you listen to the news, you read your paper, you talk to other people, listen, I'm going to use a theological word I love, be epistemologically self-conscious. That's the biggest word I know, epistemology. It means self-knowledge. Rusty, I think you are epistemologically self-conscious. That's what this means. You look at life through the Word of God. God never lied to us. What He says is life. And I love it that in John 17, verse 17, Thy word is truth. That's what we build upon. As I looked at this, self is limited in its assets and abilities. It's destructive to everything around 
false teaching is. Confidence in self is. It's destructive. That's why people who get married without Christ build a marriage on sand and the flood comes and the wind blows and their house is torn down. I want you to think about something. Destruction, doom, depravity, and deception come from one place, hell itself and Satan. And when you read about that and somebody in the church comes teaching you something other than trust in God by grace, through faith, you're beginning to build on sand. And you look at destruction, look at doom, look at depravity, look at deception, look around our nation. And look around churches. We're in the home. We're not reading the Bible. We're in the home. We're teaching what we think. We should turn back to the Word. Reliance upon self and personal attainment. Paul said it very plain. He said, it's all trash to me. He said, I can't offer God anything. Not one little thing that I've accomplished. And get to thinking about all the accolades and the, the medals and all the, the trophies that you can stack up. I'll never forget walking into a man's house. He was probably here in the south. The best bowler that has ever lived. This was in Macon, Georgia. He had a room that was dedicated to himself. The walls were covered with trophies, with bowling, bowling balls and all that. And he wanted to show that to me. I said, wait a minute. I want your wife and children in here. What do you know about that woman you're married to? What are her spiritual needs? What does it mean to love her? What does it mean to take care of her in Christ? What it says in Ephesians 5, to love her more than you love yourself. And he looked at me and I said, and wait a minute, look at those children. What are you teaching them? To be self-centered, demanding, I want my way, and disobedient to authority? And he looked at me and he hung his head he said, but look at all this stuff. I said, that's it. That's what it is. And guess what? You can't trade one piece of that for peace of mind and for salvation. I came back about a year or two later. That was gone. I began to talk to this young man. He started getting his act together. Why? Because Christ came to live in him by grace. Before God saved Paul, he placed his confidence in himself. How many people brag on persecuting others? He did. He said, man, I did it. I killed people. I had them drugged out of their homes, thrown in jail, and a lot of them put to death. He placed his confidence in his personal righteousness. I'm a good guy. I'm an elder. I'm a deacon. And the ones I can't stand are the self-righteous preachers. We need preachers who are humble, who know Christ, and live to honor Him. Now the second thing, first you're going to have either confidence in the flesh, and you just lost everything. Or you're going to have confidence in Christ, and you're going to gain what is important. Jesus noted 
I want you to turn to it in Matthew 5.17. That too is in the New Testament. Alright, Matthew 5. Flip over there real quick. Matthew 5. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find it. There. Now you got to think about this. Those, those Pharisee boys, they wrote up a lot of additional laws. Over 113. You had to number your steps on Sunday. You couldn't go certain places. It's always, you can't. God comes along and says, I can, with you we will. Now look at what this says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. That's, that's Jesus talking now. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill or keep them in your place. So that any goodness, any righteousness that we have, it comes from Christ. It's His. It's a gift to us. It enables us to be moral, ethical, truthful. And so when we tell somebody something, we do it. If we say we love them, we're willing to lay our life down for them and give them the best that God gives us. As I look at this Philippians passage, I find the following things that are confidence in God. He not only came as God the Son and fulfilled the law, our confidence must be known that Christ alone is our righteousness. Another thing that you need to think about is this. Who built self-righteousness or a lost person and made them good by religion? Where can you go to get religion to bring you up so that God looks at you and says, by the way, you did so good, I'm going to accept you into my presence. Only Christ. He raised Him on the third day. He seated Him at His right hand. He's coming back to judge the world and make things right that are wrong. And on that day it says every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is the Lord of lords and King of kings because He has the name above every name. Everything spiritual, everything physical focuses on Christ. Know about Him. The vast differences between He and religion. Paul's self-righteousness was rubbish. And he began to understand. He redeemed me. He paid for me. Every sin I've ever committed, it was on Him. On the cross. When the Father turned away and He cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken me? The first time in eternity, Jesus had not the presence of the Father. That's hell. Hell is having God cut off and it's a place. I look at this and it's also, He's not only redemption, He reconciles. He brings us to Himself and covers us in His goodness. And then He enables. He enables us to walk, talk, and think. When we were at Bellhaven College in Jackson, Mississippi, back in the 1860s, I had a 
uh, a fellow living in the hall where I was responsible for these idiots that lived there with this idiot. Can you imagine some teenage boy coming to another teenage boy and saying, are my clothes right? I wasn't raised to look at clothes. I was raised to bathe and brush my teeth and wash my hands and use manners. But I didn't know a thing about clothes. And this guy came to me and he said, my daddy is in the state house in Jackson, Mississippi. We live right across in Tallahatchie County, right across the river from all kinds of folks. And he began to tell me about all the stuff that he got away with because his daddy was a congressman. And I turned to this boy one day and I said, Look, you've been sleeping with a woman you're not married to. That's sin. And I was a brand new Christian. But I had enough sense to know what he was doing was against what God says. Thou shalt not commit adultery. He was shooting cannons. You know, they've got a few old cannons up there in Mississippi. He was loading them up with pipes and chains and marbles and anything he could and shooting them across the river and knocking houses, knocking old houses down. And he stole and he lied and he tried to use his position. I finally had to look him in the face and I said, John, that's a good name by the way, John. I said, John, you're lost. You need Jesus Christ. You don't need more self-righteousness. You don't need Presbyterian. By the way, there's going to be a lot of folks in heaven that are not Presbyterians. And I looked at this passage and I said, John, what are you going to do when you stand before God? And he says, why should I let you into heaven? You have nothing. You have no Jesus. And you have nothing to trade for your eternal life. John looked at me and he says, now this is so swirly. I like the way I am. I said, I don't, and God doesn't, and you're in trouble. I look at this and I think, the power of the resurrection, that life coming into death, raised a dead body three days, buried in a tomb. And that life of God is what is given to us by grace through faith that's given to us. And death will come to us because we're saved sinners. But on Christ's return, we'll go into eternity to live forever in a new body and a transformed soul. He also said, I want to know the fellowship of His suffering. How many of you have been checked out and beat up verbally or even hurt because of righteousness? Doing what is God's kind of right. And God says, I want you to understand if you suffer for righteousness' sake, the way that it's going to prove itself to be acceptable to God is one way is you to get up and say, thank you, Lord, that you counted me able to stand at this time. And then thirdly and lastly, He says, I want you to understand being conformed to His death. Now, He died to the world. And dying to the world meant that everything that He could have wanted, He said no to it. 
except his love for God the Father and for us. Think about that. Somebody that will never leave you. He'll never turn you away. He'll always take you as you are. You know, Paul began to realize all of this when he was in Acts 27 on a ship that was out in the Mediterranean and a big storm came. I've been on the lakes in Florida where I grew up when storms would come. We had a, a sailfish and a sailboat and I watched it get turned over one day. And my old daddy came out there and got us, saved us. But Paul was on one and it was getting so bad that they had to throw their armor, their tackle, their food, everything over to keep it floating. And there was a Roman centurion. Boy, they're in the New Testament a lot, aren't they? Kind of important. And he had watched Paul and listened to Paul and seen that Paul had trust in the Lord. And he was going to kill all the prisoners. There were only, now listen to this, 267 of them. Now that's a lot of folks to kill, isn't it? I don't know what his plan was, but an angel came to Paul in the night and said, don't kill a person. They're all going to live if you do what God says. And Paul told that centurion, this is what God wants. Life, not death, to save these people. And I looked at this passage again and again, and what I began to see, they rode out that storm. They anchored what was left of that boat on the island. And there they were safe and alive. And that's what God's done. He's come down into our situation. He's taken care of the storm of sin. He's raised us up. He's sanctified us in salvation. He has taken all of our greatness and put it in a garbage can and given us life eternal, forgiveness. And we now have confidence in Him and He is conforming us to a life that is dying to this world in sin. I'm going to ask you plain out and straight. Where are you? Are you in Christ? If you're in Christ, think about it. Paul did, and he began to talk about things that absolutely boggle us. The power of the resurrection. Fellowship of suffering. Conformity to his death. What does that mean to you? Now I'm going to say it in conclusion. This little notebook here I was reading, it says there's a lot of folks in the church. They know about God. They don't know Him. They better get it right. Because on the judgment day, the Lord Jesus is going to get it right. 